Hello, and welcome to the Accelerated Culture Podcast, a sonic journey through the vibrant and revolutionary sounds of the 1980s and 1990s. In this podcast, my co-host Rob and I will dive deep into the era of new wave and alternative music, exploring the infectious beats, introspective lyrics, and groundbreaking experimentation that defined a generation and left an indelible mark on the music landscape. Join us as we unravel the stories behind the music that shaped an era. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Accelerated Culture Podcast. I am Rob. And I'm Lori. Hi, Lori. How are you doing? I'm good. How about you? I'm doing fine. I'm very excited you let me pick the album again this week, especially after you ran over me last week. But, yeah, you know, well, you had seniority. You had seniority. Yeah. And I, I think it's very clear you were excited about last week's topic, con- considering that the, the landscape of listeners was devastated by 11 F-bombs that you dropped during the course of the show. We do have to address <laughs> that before we get to the... I swear, I do not remember you saying it that much when we were recording. And then I'm playing it back with Chad and Kathy, and I'm like, we started counting. I was like, I'm going to get home. I'm going to start a band called F11, because that's how many times she said fuck it during the course of the episode. Okay. It's like, it's like Blink-182 is my band F11. <laughs> the new single by C.C. Sputnik, F11. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah, shoot it up. <laughs> I I must have just been feeling really comfortable because that is my normal state. I mean, I'm a computer programmer, and you know the most common language used in programming is profanity. But I want to share with you. I I because okay. Well, first of all, I want to apologize to our listeners if I did offend anybody. But I guess Perry brings out the barrel in her ah i see what you did there but here's what i'm proposing (laughs) uh ladies and gentlemen if you could see the beauty of the swear jar in front of me yes i have a swear jar so we're gonna count (laughs) and i'm gonna put now i'm not gonna do a dollar because uh that will devastate me but i will put a quarter in every time i drop an f-bomb and we'll see how much money we have left by the end of the uh, end of the end of the podcast. I'm trying. Where are the proceeds going from from your swear jar? Um, I don't know. I'm gonna order a pizza. I think so, we've got off on a small tangent, but that's okay. We're going right back to it. This week we're in 1989, folks. We are moving right along because this year has so many landmark alternative albums that just changed everything about alternative. So rather than do one of the year compilation type things again, let's just go right into the year 1989 and start with New Order's landmark album, Technique. A favorite of yours, I believe. Oh, I love this album so much. And, you know, this was one that when it came out, I'll be honest, I didn't like it. it you were took not a alone. While. You were not alone in that. Yeah. I mean, it, it took a little while. It grew on me. Now, it came out in January of 1989. But for some reason, I don't think I listened to it until that summer. And so I was working at a record store. So I know I picked it up when it came out. So I don't know why my, my memories are of listening to this in the summer and not in January. But I guess that's not relevant. But yeah, the first the first time I listened to it, I absolutely hated it. I really did. I don't think I got what it was that they were doing. Now it is absolutely my favorite New Order album. One of my all-time favorite albums of any band, really. I think other than Substance, which, you know, being a compilation the way it is, I know that's a, a bit of a cheat, but... This is probably the New Order album I have listened to the most from end to end of any in their collection. Even more than something like Republic, which I know was like a huge breakthrough for them, but this is the one that 
I've listened to the absolute most. It brings me the most pleasure from the band. For those of you that came in late and aren't familiar with New Order, let's do a quick recap of their origins. They originally started off as Joy Division, which as you may know, and then unfortunately, they lost singer and songwriter Ian Curtis to suicide in 1980, and therefore had to reinvent themselves by adding Jillian Gilbert to the lineup and becoming New Order. Now, when they first came out in 1981, a lot of the New Order's music sounded very much in the same vein of Joy Division. However, a trip to New York in 1983 would change all that when New Order started hitting the clubs on the town and discovered some of the amazing dance music that was being played all throughout the city. There was the change in the band's sound. And after that, they became this beautiful synth-laden dance band with this darker undertone to their lyrics. So... What we're looking at here when this album is being recorded is about five years after that trip to New York, finding themselves at a strange juncture, trying to figure out which way to go after Substance came out and one single True Faith becoming such a monster success in the United States, becoming their first top 40 hit. So Technique then, it was the fifth studio album that they put out. It was released on January 30th, 1989 by Factory Records, and it was New Order's final studio album to be released under Factory Records, but not their final Factory release because they did release a single the following year called World in Motion. Which, if I remember correctly, that was was commissioned for the World Cup of that year? Correct. Correct. It's a British thing that they do, football anthems. I don't get it. This was also the... First New Order album to reach number one on the UK charts. So just a quick thing I was reading. Apparently the pressure for this album was very high because they were the major cash cow at the time for Factory Records. And apparently Tony Wilson, the label boss of Factory Records, and the group's manager, Rob Gretton, really wanted them to get into the studio and get to work on this album. And while it was not revealed at the time, the main reason they wanted to do that was to keep a nightclub open, the Hacienda nightclub, which New Order were responsible for opening in the first place. But didn't mention that to the band, just said, you know, it's time, let's go. And a lot of that is documented in the film 24-Hour Party People, which I love, but that really kind of tells the story of Factory Records and the Hacienda and Tony Wilson and the kind of financial quagmire that he found himself in but yeah new order's profits were basically getting sunk right back into propping up the hacienda around the time this album came out i think the hacienda actually started to turn a profit and i think it was at least in part due to the not just technique but like the acid house scene that was starting to become very popular edm was popping up on both sides of the atlantic very heavily in your area in Chicago and over Mm -hmm. here in my area in Detroit, Detroit was also becoming a giant EDM center and still is to this day. And a lot of that was making its way over to the other side of the Atlantic in the same way that we loved getting British music over here in the eighties that we couldn't necessarily hear on the radio. Is it okay if I talk a little bit about acid house here? Is that cool? This album would not have happened without the acid house um, genre. I guess. Yeah, drop some Acid House. Okay, all right. Well, Acid House originated in Chicago in the mid-80s. There were a couple artists here in town that were really big. There was a group called Future, P-H-U-T-U-R-E. There was another artist called Sleazy D that was really big. And it, it really kind of started to originate at a club here in town. It was called the Music Box. It was actually originally the Warehouse, which is really well known as the origin of house music, Frankie Knuckles and everything. When Frankie Knuckles left, Ron Hardy was the name of the DJ that stepped in to take his place. And Ron Hardy was a lot more experimental in his sound. He was using a lot more uh, high energy, high tempo, kind of staccato music, a lot more experimental, a lot more textured, I think. It was really a lot of emphasis on texture. And that started to become known as Acid House. So, I mean, it was really, I I saw it described somewhere as techno and disco with the funk aspect taken out. The 
Roland TV303 synth was very heavily used as well. The group Future that I mentioned, they put out a 12-minute acid tracks is what it was called, and it was played by DJ Ron Hardy at the Music Box, and that's where they say the name Acid House came from. So it got exported to the UK, and this is so... We see this so much, I think, with, with our musical movements here in the U.S., getting exported to the U.K., and they kind of work with it, repackage it, send it back to us, right? We saw that a lot with, like, blues, rock and roll, and now with Acid House. So it started to become very popular in the U.K. actually right around the time that New Order was recording this album, and then Summer of 88 was known as the second Summer of Love, in the UK because the rave scene had exploded and the use of ecstasy and LSD on the club scene as well. I guess they were taking the name Acid House a little bit too literally. So house-themed events started popping up, not just in the UK, but also in Ibiza, which is, of course, huge party capital, right? So the band decided that they needed to go to Ibiza to record. Bernard Sumner, the singer of New Order, said, The official line was that there was no studio good enough in Manchester, but the real reason was that we had a whole load more fun when we went away somewhere. The thought of going to Ibiza greatly appealed to us. So when they got there, they found that basically the recording studio was crap. I love that they get down there. They think they're going to get all this work done. And then it's like the worst studio you could possibly imagine. It was called Mediterranean Studios. Yes. And I've got a quote here from Bernard as well. The studio was rubbish. It was geared towards heavy metal with walls covered in green shag pile carpet, which flies were nesting in. It was Ew. awful. Ew. But it had its own swimming pool, a 24-hour bar with drinks served by its own barman, Herman the German, who was actually Spanish. And it was located down a dusty lane at the end of which lived a man who sold things. 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 <laughs> Bernard had said the level of hedonism was tremendous. And also, we were wrecked, though, all the time, and the whole thing cost us an absolute fortune. Now, did you find anything about the bus tours? There's a guy named Terry Mason. He's a longtime, like, childhood friend of the band members. He worked some with them with Joy Division. He traveled with them to Ibiza. And he got this brilliant idea that they were going to sell tickets to bus tours to fans of New Order so they could come into the studio and watch the band report. And this ended so badly because, as you can imagine, you've got a whole bunch of basically ravers coming in they had barbecue they had all kinds of drinks and basically it just became a gigantic party every time they bust the people in they couldn't get anything done and i guess this went on for about three weeks bernard said that they got tired of it and put a stop to it because they got tired of puddles of vomit everywhere so i thought that was kind of bizarre now, supposedly, they had actually been expecting to work with Brian Eno while they were in Ibiza. And according to Shadow Players, the Rise and Fall of Factory Records, quote, he failed to appear. Now, I have no idea. Does that mean that, that he was supposed to do it and he quit? Does that mean that the band just thought he was going to be there? Nobody communicated with him? I have no idea. Well, he is quite mysterious. Well. He's very mysterious. <laughs> Terribly mysterious. Terribly mysterious. <laughs> yeah. So the band spent June and July of 87 at Mediterranean Studios, but they ended up with little more than a guitar solo and some drum tracks. And the drum tracks were basically because Stephen Morris didn't like the sun and the heat, so he just holed up in the studio all, all day to stay out of the sun. So he was actually able to get some drum tracks done. Besides the fact that they would not stop partying while we were there, the whole thing backfired anyway because they went down there expecting to hear a lot of Acid House music when they got there, and that was not what they got at all. According to Sumner, they got something called Balearic Beat, which was the exact opposite of what they were expecting to find in a party capital like Ibiza. 
when they left Ibiza, then they ended up in Bath at Peter Gabriel's newly opened Real World Studio. And so they spent August and September of 87 in that studio. And while they were in Bath, the band visited some London clubs, Shum and Spectrum, and especially at Spectrum, that's where they started to really absorb this acid house influence, which Bernard called completely hypnotic. And that is where I think a lot of the inspiration came from. However, they had actually pretty much finished Fine Time while they were in Ibiza. And Fine Time is the most acid house of all of the tracks on the album. So they must have, if not in Ibiza, they must have picked up this influence before they went to Ibiza, right? It's the one quote I got from some of their alleges that they were already into Acid House and they were going down there to immerse gotcha. themselves in it. And then, gotcha. whoops, and it wasn't there. you didn't get it. it. Yeah. Yeah. So they actually ended up kind of creating that scene, I think, in Ibiza. The band obviously had a really good time recording this album, and I think it comes through. I think that, you know, you can tell. And incidentally, somebody had pointed out that New Order did have a song called Ecstasy back in 1983. So maybe a little bit of foreshadowing there. Go ahead. The cover art was done by Peter Seville, who's absolutely a legend. So he kind of picked up that there was a retro aspect to this music. He said in an interview, the 1988 ecstasy thing seemed like the 60s drug thing. So fine time and technique are my Warhols. And so I think he was kind of going for like that Andy Warhol factory pop art influence with not only the album cover, but also with like the single covers. Really saturated colors, uh, celebration of mundane objects, obviously the the bust or the statue on technique, but fine time, you really can see on the single cover the Andy Warhol influence where instead of Campbell's suit cans, it's basically pills. The little cherub on the cover was designed by a man named Stephen Mason, by the way. Oh. And I think you're right about the Warhol comparison because I've seen so many different colored variations of that cover all over the place. And that's pretty much like when Warhol would do the same thing with Marilyn Monroe where it would be a, a like a Hollywood Squares thing of different colors. With the screen printing, right, right, right. Yeah. It was an early Zoom meeting with Marilyn Monroe in several colors. There you go. Well, now we get to the good stuff. We get to listen to the tracks. Oh, yeah. This is the fun part. We get to, we're going to break it down. Yeah. Acid House style. All right, let's get into technique itself. Starting with track one, this was the first single off the album released in late 1988, and it did manage a beautiful number 11 on the UK charts. This is Fine Time. I actually love where the title comes from on this song. Okay. Because I had no idea until we started researching this that they used to just write stuff down and go, oh, I like this one. Tick, tick, tick. That's going to be our titles. Drummer Stephen Morris got his car towed and he had to remember to go pick it up. So he wrote, fine time to remind himself to go pay the fine. Ta da. <laughs> Such a killer name for a song. I love that. I, I love that story. And it'll help you pay your traffic tickets, too. Yeah, I think that's hilarious. All right, so so this one was written and recorded in Ibiza. I think this was the only complete recording they did while they were in Ibiza. And it's definitely the most overtly acid house track on the album. 
supposedly it was written in one day after a particularly memorable club visit. Okay, so you were just talking about this being recorded at Ibiza and everything had already been done. Mm-hmm. When they were recording this in Ibiza, the first vocal that Bernard laid down, it was supposed to be this supposedly sexy Donna Summer style vocal. And when they went and played it back, according to Sumner himself, it sounded like he was constipated on the toilet. So I read that, yeah. They did, however, end up using that vocal in a remix of Fine Time done by Steve Silk Hurley. And I listened to that today, as I do have a copy of that mix. Uh, Bernard's right. It really (laughs) does. It sounds like he's got major problems there. Too much cheese. You know, speaking of his vocals, uh, I know when you and I were listening to this the other day, I think you commented on how his singing had improved. He actually paid for vocal lessons before this album. No, Bernard's in good voice on this album. I think he's a little more emotional than he has been in the past. I think you can hear more of that in his voice. And I imagine part of that is when they were recording this album, he was going through a divorce as well. So... That may be part of where it's coming from, but not on this track. This track is just tons of fun. It is ridiculous. The lyrics are so goofy. It's hard to believe this is New Order. You know, I've met a lot of cool chicks, but I've never met a girl with all her own teeth. I love that. It's just so goofy and over the top, but I think any woman that has been to a dance club has encountered somebody like that. You know, the the kind of creepy older guy. You know, you're much too young. I figured the line about the teeth was just British as hell. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was trying to find, there was a story somewhere about that that was actually inspired by somebody at the Hacienda, but I couldn't find it. I couldn't find who that person was. So maybe I imagined it. Uh, and that and that's Bernard too, but they, they ran it through some kind of vocal distortion thing apparently they didn't even know what was going to be the first single off the album originally uh they were so sick of all the songs that none of them could pick one so the manager rob gretton asked if he could choose and he told them we're going to choose fine time it's going to go top 10 if it doesn't go top 10 i'll give each one of you 250 pounds if i'm wrong and it went to number 11 so he had to pay out a thousand yep to clarify my source, because I would hate to not give credit where credit is due, my source is the Dave Thompson book, A Legacy in Wax, listening to Joy Division and New Order, revised edition. Nice. And I have been using two books. I have uh, Bernard Sumner's memoir and also Shadow Players, The Rise and Fall of Factory Records. So those are the two books that I'm using here. Go buy some books, kids. Go buy some books. <laughs> I think that's absolutely hysterical, though, that, you know, it only went to 11. It did go to number two in the U.S. on the Billboard dance charts. And you had asked about the sheep bleeding at the end. Did you ever find out what that was about? I did, as a matter of fact. Okay. Apparently, that was a little shot, if you want to call it that, for lack of a better word, of fans of Acid House just following the flock to the music. Nice. All right. Well... So this was the one that the first time I heard it, I hated it. I I hated it because I didn't get it. In 87, 88, where I grew up, music was still very segregated. There were like AOR type stations, stuff like that. And then there was, quote, black music, right? And stuff like house music and rap, hip hop, all of that. White girls from a suburb didn't listen to that. So I didn't have a frame of reference for this. And when I heard it, I'm I'm like, what the fuck is this? Oh, that's a quarter. Swear jar. Swear jar. Quarter on the swear jar. (laughs) So now that I got that out of my system, uh, shall we move on to track two? Yes, we can move on to track two. I think we had a fine time discussing track one. Okay, so the next track is called All the Way. Doesn't take a genius to tell 
this is where I think a lot of the fans who did not take the technique right away, I think it was because all they heard at first were the singles instead of picking up the album, because this is classic New Order down to AD. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it kind of reminds me a little bit of, was it Love Vigilantes? Uh, sure. Yeah. yeah. It, it reminds me a lot of Love Vigilantes off of the album Low Life. It's got the same kind of vibe to it, I think. And this is one where I, I know neither of us could really find a lot of info. We really couldn't find much about anything except for the singles, right? But I do really like the lyrics to this one. It takes years to find the nerve to be apart from what you've done, to find the truth inside yourself and not depend on anyone. I think this is Bernard's divorce coming through here because that sounds so much like you've got to find the nerve to be apart from what you've done. You've got to find the nerve to change and move on after everything you've put together in your life. And that's what this feels like to me. It feels like a lot of this is going to be Bernard putting his emotions into the lyrics to kind of exercise those demons from the system. Now, can we talk about him making up a word? Literacites. Parasites, Parasites and, and literacites. They'd burn me if they can. I mean, this is taking a page from the Simon Laban playbook. You know, Simon makes up goofy words, Sanhedralites, right? <laughs> and now we've got literacites. We've got Sanhedralite, Bichilder, and now we've got literacites. Oh, Bichilder, the church. <laughs> yeah. We need to I, We need to create like a, a glossary for for our website. <laughs> Look out for like, our short story featuring all these words in the near future. Yeah. But, you know, it's like, really, you couldn't, really, you couldn't come up with a word that fit rhythmically, that fit the meter. You had to make one up. I kind of like it. Do you like because, it? Because, well, it's a made up word. I understand what he's saying. Well, then clue me in because I have no idea. Literacites? I just pictured it was a bunch of book smart people who know better than everybody. You know, the one part I don't really care for, I think, is at the end, there's the synth that kind of has almost this goofy, like, what's the name of the instrument that it's like a keyboard, but it has like a mouthpiece? You know what I'm talking about? It's not a harmonica. I don't know the name of it. But I mean, that's kind of what it sounds it's like. It's a hooter. To me. No, Okay. The Hooters played one. It's a Hooter. Okay. Melodica. It's called a Melodica. I don't care for that in this song. Other than that, I think it's a good song. I think the one thing I mentioned to you when we were listening to it together was this song just seems like it begs for a cold stop and it fades out and it just, it feels weaker for it for some reason. You did. I don't know why it just feels weaker for fading out when it should have just had that at the end and been done with it. Yeah. I am ready to move on. Let us move on to track three. Every cut on this album is sterling, and this one is no different from any of the others. Track three is called Loveless. Again, I, I the lyrics on this one, you know, you mentioned uh, Barney's divorce. This has got to be. I completely agree with you. Just in the first verse alone, there was a time I called before where all I knew was what I saw. The keeper of a major key, I lived in a town called Liberty. That was before. 
This is now. Yeah, this is another divorce song. I don't think there's any question about that. No price or pride would fall before a 10-foot wall without a door. Can't you see? Why don't you look at me? It's not your right to be so much my enemy. So whatever this relationship was, it ended very badly. The vocal on this, I think, is, is very heartfelt, too. Again, I think Sumner's in great voice on this album, but especially on the part you just mentioned, the can't you see, why don't you look at me? It really comes through. You can hear the longing. Yes. And yet it's all upbeat and you can dance to it. You know, it's interesting the way that the song was titled. So it's not loveless one word. It's love less. Like almost like a command as opposed to being loveless. I don't know. Am I overthinking it? Maybe. No, this is. I think this is the one title in here that actually fits the lyrics very well. Mm. Yeah. But it's it's so much fun still to listen to. It is a beautiful thing. It just, the drums that kickstarted at the beginning are fantastic. Once again, a great track. You're going to hear me say that over and over again because I don't think there's a bad track on this album. I really don't. I agree with you. This album is, yeah, spectacular. Very, very strong guitar work from Bernard. And, you know, then we have Peter's bass, which I know we're going to talk about several times in the context of this album. Over and over. Yes. You know us on our bass. We love our bass players. We so. do. We do. And and you and I had talked in our previous episode about how Peter Hook's bass kind of came to the forefront and was not so much part of the rhythm section. It actually carries the melody. And then here in this one between his bass and then Bernard's acoustic guitar, it's just really kind of a nice blend. Like the last album we did with Eric Avery's bass, Peter Hook's bass is one of the big things that drives this album. And yeah, it it, it does remain almost a part of the percussion where it does in, you know in drive the rhythm but at the same point yeah it does take on a melody of its own yeah. where it almost comes through even more than Sumner's guitar work I'll admit every time they put Peter low in the mix on this album I get cranky I'm like no I can't hear the bass anymore it makes me sad okay so the next song was actually the second single off the album and this is called Round and Round So there's actually three versions of this song, which I'm sure you're you're probably even more familiar with than I am, Mr. DJ. Oh, I don't know. I never really got into the remix as much with New Order. I was the album tracks are seven minutes long usually as they are. I don't need remixes. They're already long <laughs> right, as it is. Right. Well, so this version that we just heard is the album version and it has a kind of a hard dance feel. It really emphasizes the drums and the bass. And it concludes with a old, abrupt ending. You know, like you you were talking in the previous song about how it faded out and it didn't feel right. Well, this one, this one, bam, ends. Dead Gold Stop. Yes. The seven-inch single version was co-produced by Stephen Haig, which I think emphasizes the melody a little bit more and the vocals. And it replaces some of the instrumental break with a repeat of the intro, and then it just kind of fades out. And that's the version that was in the music video. And then there was also a 12-inch version that it has the intro sequence and then stops cold, and then it basically kind of moves into the 7-inch version. It's really, 
there, there's also a keyboard solo midway through. And of the three remixes, Bernard Sumner said in a radio interview that he was not fond of the different round and round remixes, and he named the Stephen Haig radio remix as his favorite. I am perfectly happy with this album version. I think it's fantastic. I think the album version is the best one, too. But So there was some controversy with the band about this. So the band actually had another single in mind, but Tony Wilson at Factory Records wanted this to be the second single, and being the boss of the, the label got his way. The single was held, and it wasn't released until February 27th of 89, so it was released after the album. And the band members felt that this hurt their single's performance on the charts, maybe because everybody already owned the album, and so you know they didn't have to go out and buy the single as well. So there was some question as to whether if they had released it before the album to get people excited about the album, would the single have done better than it did? Now, the funny thing here about Tony Wilson pushing for Round and Round to be released instead of their original choice for second single was this entire song was a shot at him. Really? Every last bit of it. They had called him a parasite in interviews, and they took all their frustration out on him in this song. You waste your time like my money. It ain't so funny, but it's true. Don't waste my money, baby. All of that is them being very irritated with Tony Wilson and everything was about to come to a head. And that's part of the reason that this was going to be their last release on Factory, no matter what happened. That's fascinating because I had no idea. I mean, I heard this. I just assumed it was another song about a failed relationship. It sounds that way on the surface, but from the research I did and do various articles, I don't have one specific one I can point out. But yeah, this was really them getting fed up with Tony Wilson, messing with finances, using them as a cash cow, and yeah. just slagged him throughout the whole song. Wow. And he chose it as the single. Isn't it ironic? Don't you think? Again, with Hookie's bass. Oh, my God. This, this song is the bass. <laughs> this is my favorite single off the album. I will point that out. It's not necessarily my favorite song on the album, but this is still my favorite single. I think I heard this, actually, before I ever heard Fine Time. Yeah. And I think that was part of the reason I might have been in on the album from day one is because I came in on this single not the one that was previously released that somehow just slid past me in the scheme of things. But that's the way it was when you were a fan of Alternative and growing up in Gun Rack, Ohio. So you didn't get singles like that. I was going to say, there were only three singles released off this album, right? Mm -hmm. And we've already covered two of them, so. Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating to me about Tony Wilson, though. That's I just love I love the absolute irony of him saying, No, we should release this, not even noticing hate two sec like two feet in front of his face. You know? Well, or maybe he did. It's possible. I mean, he he had some weird choices for some of the music, you know, like uh the music that he chose to be played at Martin Haddock's funeral, like was just what? I mean, this is kind of inappropriate. You, you know? may be right, because, you know, if he knew it was going to make money, that was good enough for Tony. That's that's very true. That's very true. All right, what's next? Track five is another highlight from the album, and I think this is one with, once again, we're, we're looking at Bernard's crumbling marriage here. Track five is called Guilty Partner. Yeah. 
I do again. I like this one. I like this one. Imagine yeah. that. We both like this one too. Yeah. I love the whole bit where he keeps saying, you'll always come back to me. You'll always come back to me. Like he's trying to convince himself as much as he is us. Yeah. Boy, that reminds me of a couple relationships. Sorry. Sure. <laughs> right. Again, though, here we have another title that seems to fit the lyrics to a certain degree. The question is, yeah. which one's the guilty partner? Is it Bernard or is it his soon-to-be ex-wife? But again, lyrics top-notch here, I think. My favorite lyric on this one is, you once said to me that I was a cruel man and you know that I almost believed you. That's so relatable, right? I mean, who, who among us hasn't been in a relationship where maybe there's gaslighting going on or maybe there's some kind of like projection going on we're being told things about ourselves that we start to think is that true you know oh you, you know you're saying i'm a cruel man i almost believed it you know i mean i almost started to think that maybe i was right this was my divorce too same thing i i got a lot of the blame that was a lot of projection here let's lighten it up a little bit how many narcissists does it take to change a light bulb? None. They use gaslighting. <laughs> Starring Egrid Bergman. Thank you. <laughs> Bernard recorded the acoustic guitar in Ibiza, I guess outside under a tree with a microphone. And there's like birds chirping in the tree and stuff because he said that the sound in the building was really terrible. There was a really flat resonance. So he actually felt that he was getting a better sound outside where there were birds. Well, I guess it was probably better that you have birds stripping on the track than the flies that were apparently buzzing in the carpet walls up at the studio. So, Or, or the goat bleeding. Oh, that was on purpose. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think the instrumentation on this really contributes to the mood. You know, I mean, it's... It, really kind of a bleak song and i think it's the instrumentation is very dark and very heavy and i think it really supports that i like the way it builds at the end oh yeah it just builds and builds and builds until this sea of synths comes in and just drowns you it is absolutely a beautiful way to end side one of an album yes absolutely gorgeous and when we were listening to this together i think i Right around this that point in the song, I think I uh, think I said something to that effect. And that, yeah, you mentioned that's the end of side one. So I'm going to flip my cassette over. Side two starts with a track called "Run." have a special place in my heart for this song i don't even know why there's something about this song that just gets me in all the feels you know maybe it's because it sounds like another song that gets you in all the feels which is what and that's why they got sued oh no 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 that does not get me in all the feels but since you mentioned it yes unfortunately they did get the lawsuit treatment on this one. It turns out that John Denver's people perked up a little bit when they heard the guitar lick on this song and some of the vocals and thought it was just a little too close to Denver's composition leaving on a jet plane, which any of you older listeners may remember Peter, Paul, and Mary doing back in the day. Well, 
It did get settled out of court, but Denver is listed as a permanent songwriter now on Run by New Order. Yeah, so he's got some songwriting royalties, or his estate now, I suppose. <laughs> he would have, but yeah. L- little uh, little plane problem there. Um, Run. Let's talk more about Run. Let's. Okay. Here's our third single, our final single. Yes. Yes, when they released the single, it was actually a remix called Run 2. About 45 seconds shorter. Remixed by Scott Litt. Not a lot of difference from the album version in the long run of mm-hmm. things, though. And that one didn't come out until August 28th of 89. And that is a long break between, that's six months between single releases. Yeah, yeah. And I think that people had already kind of moved on from from the album. Can we talk about the lyrics? We sure can. Love, 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 love the lyrics. What the hell is happening? I can't think of everything. I don't know what day it is or who I'm talking to, but I know that I'm okay because you're here with me today. I haven't got a single problem now that I'm with you. That's sweet. I know. That is just so... That's why That's why I feel it here, you know? This is this is a, a rare love song in the order without any strange twists and turns Ooh, to it. Good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, they're very rarely... Yeah. Damn. That was profound. I'm profound again. Yeah, you better stop that. People are going to think I'm a dummy. That's going to be the title of my autobiography, Stumbling into Profundity, One Man's Story. Go for it, man. But I do like this song overall. I, I I definitely hear what Denver's people heard, but that does not stop me from enjoying the song any less. I'm really going to have to go back, I think, and listen to one after the other. You know, because I, I, I can't place it. This is where our five years difference in age comes into play, because that song, I was inundated with it when I was a child. I'm sorry. I'm reading on a jet. Could kill a diabetic at 50 yards, man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Let's run away from track six now and move on to track seven, a title I used to hold back in 1978. Track seven is Mr. Dis- hey. Hey, don't question my disco credentials. <laughs> Track seven, regardless of what anybody says, is Mr. Disco. Now, Mr. Disco 1978 will start here while somebody else is still recovering. Again, here's a song that has aged remarkably well, even though the style of it is very much ingrained in the time it was recorded. Absolutely wonderful stuff once again here from the band. And as always, Peter Hook just driving the song along with a fantastic bass line. You know, when we were listening to this, I was kind of speculating... You know, what What exactly is is he's singing about here? I mean, is this like a a hookup in Ibiza? You know, the holiday we spent together lives with me now and forever. It seems like, like yeah, one of those holiday hookups. Like, it's like one of those summer romances, but you can't shake it when summer's over. Uh-huh. And if they've moved on and gone their other way, you're still like, I 
I was still hooked on you. I have to find you. And I think that's where the final lines come in, where he says, it be the Mallorca and Benidorm too. I've seen all these places, but I've never found you. He's still looking for that holiday romance all over the places she thinks she might be. That's right. just what I get out of it. I can't find my peace of mind because I need you with me all of the time. But my favorite line of this is, I used to feel what language cannot say. I think we've all had those situations where there's somebody or something that is so wonderful, so amazing, or that you are so enraptured with that anything you say just can't properly voice what you feel inside. And I think that's a great translation of that. I used to feel what language cannot say. It's a beautiful line. All right. I do wish From I'd have this- found some, I wish I would have found something about this, this title though, Mr. Disco. I mean, Aside from bringing back past memories of being Mr. Disco in 1978, at the age of nine, just rocking it out on the dance floor, (laughs) I'd really be curious to know who wrote Mr. Disco on the list of titles. Somebody was uh, was taking the piss there. Yeah, I would love to. I would love to know if we. I wish there was like a record somewhere of like who wrote down what titles and who's who's they were as they were chosen for the album. Now, do I have to put a quarter in the swear jar for the P word? What did I say? I did. What did you say? Taking the piss. So no. I said it again. Okay. No, you you said it was only for one word. So. Okay. No, save your quarter. Play Gimme Galaga. Have some fun. Fucking fantastic. There you go. There's one. Quarter. Okay. All right. So next up, we have a song called Vanishing Point. This was the this was the song that the band wanted to release as the second single, but Tony Wilson overrode them. I swore this was a single. I don't know why I got heavily exposed to this cut for some reason. I swore this was a single. And when I was doing my research and I found out they did not release this in any way, shape, or form, I was very taken aback. I cannot tell you where my logic was but i swore vanishing point was a single it should have been well i mean clearly you're from an alternate timeline you know little little subtle differences here and there yeah but i had to get away from biff tannen man he was trying to kill me (laughs) i wish this had been a single because this one is god it's so gorgeous there's so many different things happening here Lyrically, it's beautiful. The keyboards are gorgeous. The the synths sparkle on this song. Yes, yes. Everything just comes together so perfectly. And even, I mean, there's like different sections of the song that... Movements. There's movements to it. There you go. There you go. Yay, band geeks. Unite. Why? What did you play? French horn. Did you really? Seven years. That's fascinating. You want to guess what I played? Clarinet. Flute. I was close. I was in the woodwinds. You were close. You were close. One of the things I've always loved about New Order is their penchant for including instrumental versions of some of their songs. This is one of those songs that would just make an absolutely gorgeous instrumental. And it, you might think it is when you're for Sumner does not come in with vocals for like 90 seconds into this song and you don't care. 
it's another amazing track and yeah it really should have been a single i am broken this is not a single that would have been a perfect release between round and round and run in that six month gap Mm, absolutely the instrumental intro that you mentioned that was actually a bit of a challenge for me in editing this for the podcast because you know we're limited as to how much of the song we can actually include and i had to it was a challenge for me to find like a part that like was representative of the whole because there's so much going on here well like you said yourself there's different movements it's hard to get every movement of the piece into one little clip like that especially on this song yes Uh, listeners there's no way that i did that justice in that edit that you just heard seek out the full version of this song vanishing point by new order it is just absolutely breathtaking there's some dark stuff going on in these lyrics too you know i think that the thing that sets this apart from some of the other more personal lyrics on this album is this one is hopeful this one seems to kind of you know take a a more hopeful note life is short but love is strong there lies a hope that i have found and if you try you'll find it too no no i get where you're coming from i get where you're coming from and what you're reading where it gets me is in the last verse where they say and they gave him away like in whistled down the wind by the look on his face he never gave in now for those who may not be familiar whistle down the wind is a 1961 film starring Haley mills from a book that was actually written by her mother and in this movie some kids find an escaped killer and they think he's jesus christ But in the end, they do give him up to the local constabulary. So I don't know. Is it a hope? Is it a false hope? That that four lines right there at the end that that kind of throw me off. And I mean, that is a really obscure reference to make 28 years after the fact. So, yeah, I I had no idea. I, I honestly did not know what that bit was about. The, the chorus, though, my life ain't no holiday. I've been through the point of no return. I've seen what a man can do. I've seen all the hate of a woman, too. Again, I think every person on the face of the earth can relate to that. I agree. You know, we, we've, we've, seen, we've seen the worst of people. And it ain't over yet, kids. Yeah. We've still got some decades to go. But we can be better. We can. Can't we? There lies the hope that I have found. Hope springs eternal. So. Just want to say one more time. Still wish this was a single. Oh. Yeah. I can't believe we've already come to the end of this album. This is amazing. It's a short album. This, when you pointed out this was 40 minutes, I didn't think so. This really feels much more epic. It feels much longer than 40 minutes. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Closing out the album tonight, we are on track nine, and it is called Dream Attack. Nothing in this world can touch the music that I heard When I woke up this morning It put the sun into my life It put my heart beat with a knife It was like I think this is a good hybrid. This is a very good hybrid of the styles that they were trying to invoke on this album. Yeah. 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 This is a a really, really good way to end the album, I think, especially with the way the instrumentation kind of builds. Nothing in this world can touch the music that I heard when I woke up this morning. 
am I the only one that will like wake up with a song in their head and just it affects the whole day it that it just had me from that opening line it just so relatable but, you even have to wonder if it's literal music or not maybe it's just you know the joy of being alive the birds are singing the wind is blowing Ooh, it's the music i heard this morning because i'm in the i don't belong to no one but i want to be with you i can't be owned by no one what am i supposed to do you mentioned earlier that oh, it was the other one that that was a love song which is kind of unusual well i think i think we have two is it really such a sin because if it is then I'll give in. I can't live without your love. Now, I was reading that around the time they were recording this, and I, I can't remember the, the lady's name, but Bernard was seeing somebody. And I remember reading this because he was spending a lot of time with Bez from the Happy Mondays. As a matter of fact, there was more than one car accident with Bez at the wheel that, you know, had Bernard terrified for his life. And that's why they shouldn't have let him come to Ibiza with them, so they wouldn't be writing off rental cars every three days. Yeah, well, that's the reason. (laughs) (laughs) Bez was responsible for them writing off a lot of rental cars in Ibiza. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) No, he and his girlfriend were off in one room, and they, they could hear Bez and Bez's girlfriend off in another room. So, so there was somebody, I, I don't remember her name, but there was somebody in his life that he was seeing at that point. So I wonder if this is about her. I don't know. You can interpret this a couple of ways. This could also be, once again, about the divorce. I don't belong to no one, but I want to be with you. Could be like, I'm divorced. You're leaving me. I belong to no one, but I want to be with you. I There's a few ways you could take this. And that, you know, I suppose that's also, true. Maybe it is in a roundabout way. So maybe yeah. either one way or another, it's a love song. It just may not be the happiest love song you've ever heard. Well, yeah. And I think I said the last two lines I, to me are a cop out. For you, I will do what I can, but I can't change the way that I am. You know, up until that point, it's really, you know, it's kind of sweet. But then you get to that and I'm like, come on, Barney, really? That's how I feel about the end of Somebody by Depeche Mode. It's all sweet, 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 sweet. And then, bleh, you know, and I like that. <laughs> Okay. I love the end of this. Once again, the instrumental break at the end just builds and builds this fantastic guitar solo that goes all the way to the end. And I think if you really listen to the end of this song, you can hear hints of what is to come in four years on Republic. I really think you can hear that in the the instrumental work at the end of this song. All right. So fantastic album from start to finish. I mean, all killer, no filler. There's not a bad track on this album. And, you know, we had commented earlier how short this album is, I think. But it doesn't feel that way, you know? It it doesn't... It It's fulfilling, you know, from start to finish. I think these are some of Bernard Sumner's best lyrics to date, honestly. From, I mean, as much as I love the albums that came before this, this one, he is just in rare form. As much as... I hate to say that it came from heartbreak. It really did make an effect on the album that became very important as far as it is lyrically. I absolutely love the lyrics on this, but the music is what still drives it. Hook's bass and the addition of Jillian back there and Morris just pounding away on the skins. This is absolutely fantastic work. And while fans did not necessarily embrace it at first, this really is the band at the top of their game. Absolutely. This is their magnum opus. And I love the stuff off Republic, but they never quite hit as hard as they did here on Technique again. Yeah, they didn't quite reach that level ever again. So, you know what I'm going to ask you next? What's that? What's your favorite track on the album? That's actually very tough this time for me. You know, because, I know. Because, oh, like somebody's got to come in first and somebody's got to come in last, I suppose. Normally, I would say round and round after years, but after going back and listening to it a few more times, I really think Vanishing Point is my favorite track on this album. I really just, I love the different sections musically. I like the lyrics. Yeah, it's it's musically solid. It's just driving. And like I said, 
it's really a showcase for the band too because Sumner's barely there in the long run. I love Vanishing Point. I wish it had been a single. Did I mention I wish it had been a single? I do. You might have. Yeah, that's definitely my favorite track on the album too. But again, I think Run deserves an honorable mention. I don't know why. I, I for some reason thought you were going to say Fine Time. I have no idea why, but I thought maybe it like completely 180 on that or something. No, Fine Time is an excellent song and it's a lot of fun to dance to. And it's got love technique. But it doesn't connect <laughs> with me. It doesn't connect with me on the same level as Vanishing Point or Run. Well, Vanishing Point, hands down for me. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I just didn't want to sound like I was repeating what you were saying. That's okay. We can both be brilliant. It's cool. Okay. All right. Did we decide what we're doing in two weeks? I believe it's your pick, and uh, you had told me about it. Oh, that's right. Pretty Hate Machine by Nine Inch Nails. Wait, we're not doing Pretty Hate Machine by Barry Manilow? You tricked me. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting episode. My teen angst had a soundtrack, and it was by Trent Reznor. No, I bet you the swear jar's full that week. (laughs) And he came from my section of the world, just an hour north of Gunrack, Ohio. So that'll be a very, very good episode. So, Yeah, honestly, I was, growing up in northeastern Ohio, I was inundated with Pretty Hate Machine, so... Just like Boingo is for you, it's almost interwoven into me. All right. Shall we wrap it up then? I think we should. I think we've we've run out of technique. Fantastic fucking album. Swear jar. So I think we we got what? 75 cents a dollar? We're going to be rich in no time. Won't get us pizza, but hey, I can get a Diet Coke at the vending machine down in our green room. If you really go off for a pretty hate machine, maybe you can get some garlic knots. All right. Well, on that note, thank you for listening, everybody. It's a goodbye from me. And a goodbye from me. Until next time, everyone, smoke them if you got them.